0: you I don't do well with names so keep telling me your name until I get it right Uh, I'll need some help with that but uh, we looked Thursday night about at Haggai we're in this period of time when the children of Israel have come back from captivity by God's grace and mercy under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua and first order of business is they built the altar so they could offer sacrifices and then they started building the temple of God the house of God so that God could dwell with them but they got the foundation laid, ran into some opposition and quit. We'll talk more about this again tomorrow, but Haggai got him stirred up and said, you guys say it's not time to build the house of the Lord yet, but you've had time to build and panel your own houses. You don't have your priorities right, consider your ways. And really Haggai and Zechariah together really stirred the people up to re- start rebuilding the temple. They got it rebuilt in about four years once they started working on it again. And uh, God was pleased by that. Zechariah was one of those two prophets. It's Haggai and Zechariah. And we're going to look at Zechariah uh, t- this afternoon and some more tomorrow. It's a long prophet, 14 chapters for a minor prophet. That's pretty long. A lot of good stuff here. We're to probably not be able to cover all of Zechariah, but I want to cover as much of it as we can. I think it's worth it. I think you'll enjoy it. And particularly, these first six chapters that we'll look as much of as we can this afternoon is an introduction a series of eight visions, and a conclusion. So it's really easy to outline these first six chapters. The rest of it's a little more challenging, but the first six chapters are very clear and distinct. They're very visual and graphic and vivid, and there's nothing like the Lord to show visions that are wild. These are uh, sci-fi visions, and they're very impactful. So I think you'll appreciate that, but we'll start with the introduction. So I'll just have you read. We'll comment on it from time to time. I'll let you talk for a minute if you want. And we'll go through it. So would somebody read Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, did they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded forever, I'm sorry, but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed us to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has done with
0: us. So, look at this first section as the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, and he looks back on what had happened to them. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. That's the time before the captivity, and God's anger with the fathers caused him to send them into exile, send them into captivity. And that was a, that was a tragic thing that was very difficult for them, that they were taken into captivity, God's message to them is, return to him. Verse 3, return to me that I may return to you. They've, they've left the Lord, now they need to turn back to him and come back to him in repentance. He says, don't be like your fathers. Your fathers, the Lord told them to return and they didn't listen. And what happened to your fathers when they didn't listen to the uh, command to return? So when they didn't listen... He says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? And, and the answer was, they, they got taken in captivity. You don't want that to happen to you. That's the point. Thank you. Got my notes, so that's helpful to have once in a while. Um, not too often, but let me uh, look at something here. So, so he says, you know, consider your ways and turn back to the Lord. So, what they had done, they let the word of the Lord catch up to them. It overtook them. It's kind of like the police catching up to you. They, uh, God, God said to return. They didn't, so the word of, the God, word of God came true in their judgment. He says, it's the Lord purpose to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he's dealt with us. So God warned them in the past. They didn't listen. They didn't repent. He sent them to captivity. What's the lesson for this generation? You better listen. You better obey. You better return. You better repent. You better do what he says. So that's the, that's the background. We need to take God's message seriously. What about for us? When we hear the word of God and it calls us to repentance, what do we do? You know, do we do what that previous generation had done? Just sort of ignore it? Go on in our own evil way? Well, you know what happened to them? Don't let it happen to you. We need to take that same warning seriously. You know, we don't like maybe to hear preaching and teaching that steps on our toes or that criticizes what we're doing, but we may need it. If we're not doing right, we need to hear the truth, and it needs to convict us of our sins and cause us to turn back to God. That's how he starts his, his uh, book, his, his message here, is to t- encourage them to return back to him on the basis of what had happened to the previous generation. Thoughts and comments about that? Yes?
1: Just a great reminder.
0: Yeah, isn't it? We need that. Yes. So Vision 1, Part A. Chapter 1, verses 7 through 11.
2: 7
3: through 11? Yes. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night... And behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth. Behold, all the earth remains
0: at rest. All right, so think about how you read these passages, these visions. They're very visual. This is what Zachariah saw. He's describing what he saw. What does he want us to do? See it. We need to see it in our mind. He's writing it down so we can visualize this. So what does he see here? What does he see? Red horse. He sees a red horse and a guy sitting on it. What else does he see? Other colored horses behind him. And uh, what do you know about these horses? Sent by the Lord. They were sent by God. What was their purpose? Patrol the earth. Patrol the earth and by, by listening to what they did, patrol the earth and do what? Report back. Report back. They were God's equestrian reconnaissance troop. He was sending them out through the earth to find out what was going on and report back. That's what they do. This is, fast forward, you might consider the relationship between these horses and the ones in Revelation 6. If you're ever studying Revelation, he refers back to these. We'll come back to these horses a little later in Zechariah as well. But God's got his horses sent out to patrol the earth and report back to him what's going on. And what is the report? Everything's calm and quiet. Good report or bad report? Good. Got you. (laughs) Bad. Let me show you why. I always like to do that. Sorry about that. Everybody always answers the same way, too. But it isn't a good report, and we'll see why here in a moment. Would somebody read 12 to 17?
4: The angel of the Lord said, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me, with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose
0: Jerusalem. So look at verse 12. The angel of the Lord says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and Judah that you've been indignant with for these 70 years of captivity? the fact that things are peaceful and quiet when the enemy is still prevailing over his people is not good news for his people. The Lord answered with gracious, comforting words and says, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease. These nations who are peaceful and quiet, God's not happy with. Why? They had punished his people. Now, did he want them to punish his people? Yes but not that much. They they like he sent them for his banking and they were child abusers. They they exceeded the Lord's mission in continuing to dominate and mistreat his people, and so he was upset with them now. Has God ever used a nation and then turned around and punished them? Sure. Can you remember an example? What about Isaiah 10? Assyria, the rod of God's anger that he turns against them and destroys them. Because they, he used them, but their attitude was prideful and self-willed. They didn't deserve the, the role that God had given them, and he punished them for it. So here, he's punishing, he wants to punish the nations for exceeding his mission in punishing his people. So he's upset that things are calm and quiet. He's ready to things get shaken up a bit and to bring his judgment down upon them. He says, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it. Uh, my cities will overflow with prosperity. I'll again choose comfort Zion, again choose Jerusalem. This is one of these cases in Zechariah, and we'll see this more. It's not so clear right now. He's got a foreground fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. It's true that the house of the Lord, the temple, is going to be rebuilt in these next four years, and God is going to bless his people. But I think the language here transcends the blessings in these next few years. And he really envisions, ultimately, the blessings that come in Christ. Like I say, I'll have a hard time proving that conclusively so far. As we keep going in these visions, I think that'll become clearer and clearer. That he's looking forward, not just to things getting better for Jerusalem in the foreground, but especially looking forward to the coming of Christ and all the blessings that that would provide for his people. Comments and questions? Justin.
3: Well, I mean, peace and quiet, I understand why we initially say, as a good report, uh, we like things to be calm and steady as she goes, kind of thing, but there are times to shake things up in our own lives. There's a time to stop being calm and to get serious and urgent and, uh, respond to sin and to repent you know, when the time is there. So uh, to pursue peace at all costs.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. There's times when it's good for God to shake us up and to shake others up. It's also true that God doesn't always bring his judgment to pass as quickly as we might like. We get impatient when wrongs aren't righted immediately. But they won't always be. You know, this is a delay for a while before things happen. Other questions or comments? So that was vision one, the horse vision. We'll come back, and the eighth vision will come back and revisit those horses. Remember, there's eight visions. So the first and the last one both deal with the horses. On to vision two, 18 to 21. Again, what should you do when you read this? See it. So 18 to 21.
1: And I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter.
0: So he sees what first? Four horns. We have a problem. We have a dual meaning for the word horn. And uh, I think they did too, actually. But what kind of a horn is he talking about here? Musical or animal? Animal. What's the significance of an animal horn? The strength and the power of the animal. You're an animal with horns. You use those horns to defeat your, your enemy animal. So these are the four horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. They're the four bad guy horns. Maybe four, because you got north, south, east, and west. That's my guess. I don't know that for sure. Then what does Zechariah see? Four craftsmen. Four craftsmen. Now, what do the craftsmen do? Yeah. They, they're bad news for the horns. They, they terrify the horns. They throw down the horns. I don't know that this is right, but I like to see the craftsman like a blacksmith that just hammers down those horns and makes neutralizes them. The idea is he somehow he neutralizes the horns. That's at least the idea. Uh, and so... God not only shows them the horns that have scattered his people, but the craftsmen God's using to destroy the horns that have abused his people. God is comforting them to teach them that for every enemy they have, God's got a craftsman to, to destroy the power of that enemy. God is going to bless his people again. That's the point. Even though they may be beaten up right now, they've been in Babylonian captivity, now essentially in Persian captivity. They've been allowed to go back, but the Persians dominate. But there's a future for God's people, because God's got a craftsman for every horn that comes against them. Comments or questions about that? Yes. Kind of a technical question.
1: Um, I was wondering if the horns, especially when they're talking about in battle, are horns of animals, but horns that have been removed from the animal, that they raise up, or that they blow through. Or is it, do you think this is an actual animal with two horns? I think
0: it's an actual animal with the horns. Okay. Because, I mean, the animal uses those horns to butt the other animal and to to, to conquer okay. So I think it's the idea of the conquering horn as opposed to the musical horn that might call the troops to battle or okay. something like gotcha. that. Thanks. Caleb. So just
3: making sure I'm tracking here. So in the first vision, God is angry with these nations who have over punished yes and in second vision god is judging those nations yes
0: nations, i think they're so they're the nations that are the enemy nations for his people god is god is punishing them he's destroying them yeah
5: Four horsemen, four horsemen,
0: yes maybe so uh he doesn't specifically say how many horsemen though there are three different colored horses behind him but i don't know if there's multiple of those so I'm not sure how many horses there were. Okay, in you do have that in Revelation, so maybe, maybe so, but I'm not sure. So, so the horses are saying that God has a troop of horses that will report back to him about what's going on on the earth, and when he finds out things are calm and at ease, he's really angry, and he's going to destroy them and bless his people again. The horns are the enemies, and the craftsmen beat down the horns to neutralize the enemy's impact. So he's telling his people that even though they've been in captivity and things are still bad, things will turn around. They'll be blessed. Elijah?
2: He's responding to, I believe, the angel in uh, the first section. He's saying, look, I am going to take care of what
0: you're crying out about. Yes, correct. So the angel was asking, how long will you keep being indignant? It's been 70 years already, and God's saying, I won't keep being indignant. I'm going to bless Jerusalem. I've got uh, a way to overcome the enemies, and I'm going to bless my people again. More comments, more questions? Good discussion, good questions. Yes, Ben. Kind of
5: this out Thursday, and you mentioned it today, the connection of these books with Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra's day, it didn't look like God was really doing very much. There's not a lot of dramatic things and whatever. Then you read this, and God's like, "No, you guys just can't see it all. But I'm doing some pretty dramatic stuff."
0: Especially, in, especially in those first four chapters of Ezra, where things got derailed even building the house because the enemies were, you know, criticizing them and were trying to threaten them if, if they tried to keep rebuilding and things like that. It looked like they've come back, but God's not with them. God's not helping. Them.
5: And it's a good lesson for us. A lot of times, there's not a lot of dramatic stuff going on. It seems like maybe God's not helping me out. He's not watching over me. He's not doing something to fix this problem. And,
0: and it God, was like, to it. and it was like 15 years, 15, 16 years that they weren't building on and Nothing was going on. Remember Joseph in Egypt? Yeah. He was first a slave. Then it got worse. He was a prisoner <laughs> for 17 years. I know the rest of the story, and so do you. So we don't read it and feel all that tension. But what if you're Joseph? You had no idea after 13 years things are going to turn around for you. How do you keep your faith through all that time? So yeah, you're right. God doesn't always act on our timetable. And that can be a real trial to our persistent faith. Okay. Vision 3. This one's really cool. Vision 3, part A. Uh, 2, 1 to 5.
3: Then I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold... There was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? He said to me, to measure Jerusalem, see how wide it is, how long it is. Behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, and said to him, run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the
0: glory in her name. So there's a lot of characters here. It gets a little confusing sometimes figuring out who's who. So chapter 2, verse 1, there's this surveyor dude. He's got a measuring line in his hand, and he's going to measure Jerusalem to see how big it is. All right? Then you've got the... the, Zacharias seemed to almost have like an angel assigned to him like an interpreting angel, kind of his special angel to kind of clarify the visions and so forth. So this angel that's uh, speaking with him, was going out, and then there's another angel running to meet him. It's a little confusing who's meeting whom. I think the angel that, that comes out uh, to, to meet him is told to run and tell the surveyor guy that Jerusalem will be ha- inhabited without walls because there'll be so many men and cattle within it. So I think the idea of this, even though there's a multiplicity of uh, characters, is that somebody going out to measure Jerusalem is being told, don't bother. You can't measure it. Now, you could normally measure their cities. It's a little be a little hard to measure our cities, right? I mean, what would you do exactly to measure New York City? I mean, maybe if you measured within the city limits. But, you know, New York City, the metropolitan area, is just kind of sprawling. Who's to say what the last house is in the metropolitan area? But their cities were easy to measure because walls. You measure from wall to wall. Well, not this one. Because it's going to grow so much that the walls are going to be down, and, and, and it's just going to, it's going to multiply. I mean, there's not going to be any walls because you've got this multitude of men and cattle. Who would have thought that about Jerusalem? In this time in Ezra, who's living in Jerusalem? Pretty much nobody who'd live in an unwalled city. So that's the problem Nehemiah faced years later. They didn't have any walls they had the temple, but nobody lived in Jerusalem hardly because there's no walls in it. There's no defense. So he's saying you can't measure Jerusalem. It's going to just burst through the seams. It's going to way outgrow its walls. But what's the problem having a city with no walls in, the first, in, this, in this time period? No defense. How do you protect it? Walls had become a little bit obsolete for us when we got bombs and, you know, things like that. But for them, a wall was pretty good protection. You had to figure out something, you know, a Trojan horse or diving up the water underneath it or whatever to get in or a battering ram. You know, you had a few uh, choices, but they weren't real good ones. So how is this city going to be protected? God's going to be a wall of fire around it. I'll tell you what, there's something better than those stone walls. That's God being the wall. And if God's a wall of fire around it, nobody's touching God's people. That's his point. They're going to to grow to where they totally eclipse the wall. But they won't need the wall. God's the wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now, in Ezekiel, 8 through 11, Ezekiel depicts, he's, he's taken on kind of a One of these guided tours of Jerusalem, but he's invisible. You ever seen those nature programs where they're talking real quietly so the animals aren't disturbed, and they show you the animals in their natural habitat? It's kind of what I'm imagining. In Ezekiel chapter 8, you've got Ezekiel being taken on this tour, and he's seeing all the horrible abominations and idolatry occurring in the temple. It's a disaster. And then what he sees is God start to leave. God was, his glory was over the cherubim, over the mercy seat between the cherubim. And it left and went to the door of the temple. And then it, later it goes out to the outer gate of the temple. And then it goes on to the mountains east of Jerusalem and gone. God's glory left his people. That was a tragedy. And that, there's no, there's no defense for Jerusalem once God leaves. But God's coming back. God's going to be the glory in her midst. Again, don't just think, He's coming back into that temple they're going to rebuild. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. That may be a debatable issue. But in a much greater sense, God was going to come and be with them. This whole idea of Jerusalem growing to be without walls is really the idea of what we have in Christ. The glory of God came down to dwell among us. And He and grew and expanded, and the people of God can't be numbered. You can't confine the people of God today into the city walls of a Jerusalem. It's all over the world. It's amazing. I love talking to Brazilians, we'll talk about this more in a minute too, but I love talking to Brazilians because a lot of those brethren don't have any much concept at all about brethren or Christians in other places. You know, they know a little bit about maybe brethren within a few hours of them, because there's not many churches there, so they know some about that, or even some brethren on the other side of Brazil in some cases, but they don't know much of anything else, and so every once in a while I've told them, you know and I just start in on one side of the globe. And I say, I know a brother who's been here. I know brethren who've been there. Uh, you know, and, and just talking to him about Christians that I know about in various countries. It's so encouraging. You realize God's kingdom has just grown and expanded to where it's, you can't confine it. It's all over the, it's over the world. And so that's, that's an encouraging thing. And the fact that God's glory is in her midst. Jesus is with us. He, he's, he's our glory. And what a wonderful blessing. So this is great news. For Jerusalem. This is the first half of the third vision. Comments and questions to verse five. Justin, justin. I'm
3: just trying to think uh, if, if you're a Jew coming back from captivity, how do you relate to this story? Uh, do you think they would fall back to the Exodus and that night of the Red Sea, pillar of fire protecting them from the enemy, and then this kind of tabernacle experience got us to the. the Holy glory in their midst. Mm-hmm. They don't have a homeland uh, just yet. They've not come home to the promised land, and maybe as an exile returning from captivity, they're, they're feeling that same kind of desire for home. But God going to give them
0: that home. They're in. They're in Jerusalem. I mean, they're in that vicinity. Right. But but God's glory has not returned yet, and they don't have the temple built yet. And they don't have a walled city. Uh, but I think God is saying he's going to bless them, he's going to become their glory, they're going to grow and multiply, the city that's deserted is now going to become so plentiful. But looking forward especially to the time of Christ, as those the applications in Christ transcend any immediate application to their time. We'll see that more in the next section. Okay, how about the second half of Vision 3? Somebody read 6 to 13.
2: There, flee from the land of the, of the north, declares the Lord. For I have despised you as the full in the heavens, declares the Lord. Hose, I have escaped you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after your glory, he has sent me against the nations, but plunder, but to plunder you. And he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them, so that they will be plundered plundered for, for the slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing, sing for joy, and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, I will dwell in your next of the Mexico, Christ, Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord. In that day, and I will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Then the Lord the Lord will possess Judah, has his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for, for he has arose from his holy habitat.
0: Flee from the north, verse six. Escape from the daughter of Babylon. Leave Babylon. You don't want to be close to Babylon when God judges Babylon. You don't want to be influenced by her corrupt lifestyle, and you don't want to share in her destruction. So get away from the worldly influence of Babylon. That's the first point he makes there. And then he says, "For the Lord, says the Lord of Hosts, after glory, He has sent me against the nations which plunder you." God is glorified by the judgment against the nations plundering His people. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You know what the apple of your eye is? That'd be like the pupil. Who would let me just come up and touch your eyeball? I'll tell you, I am terrible. I have the strongest, most uncontrollable eye reflexes of anybody in the world. (laughs) You know, my mother had glaucoma, so I need to get that puff of air put in my eyes every every year to make sure I'm not developing it. Now, it doesn't hurt. It just kind of stuns you a little. But I cannot keep my eye open to get that thing in there. They finally just give me the button. (laughs) You know, and somehow that seems to help. But, I mean, I just can't keep it open. I can't get eye drops in my eye. Sandra just has to put them, you know, over my eyelid, and then it will seep in. I cannot keep my eye open. We are very defensive about our eye, just reflexively. I mean, honestly, there's not a person in here, I don't think, to keep their eye open if I started going for it with my finger. Just involuntarily, we protect that. That's how God feels about his people. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. God takes it seriously, what we do to his people. He's sensitive to what's happening to his people. He's protective. Remember when he told Saul, 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 why persecutest thou now, me? Saul hadn't even seen Jesus, as far as we know, until that point. You know? How did he persecute me? Jesus Yeah. What is Jesus' people to Jesus? His body. Now, what would, what would happen if uh, I took somebody here, and uh, I'd have to take a pretty little one, or I'd get cream, but I started beating him up. You know, if I started beating Cy si up. Cy, si, if I started hitting you would, you, would you ask me why I was hitting you? What if I said, I'm not hitting you, I'm just hitting your body. Would that be okay? As long as I don't hit you, I can hit your body. Okay, that's the same. Yeah, I'd be like, that's the same. That's exactly right. It's the same. When people persecute us, Jesus' body, he takes it personal. Remember Matthew 25, talking about the judgment scene? If You did it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did it to me and vice versa. If you didn't do it, then you didn't do it to me. Whatever, However we treat God's people is how Jesus is being treated. That's his body. That ought to give us some serious thought whenever we mistreat our fellow brethren. Because he takes that really seriously. So he's saying, I'm that protective of you. Anybody who messes with you messes with my eyeball. And I'm not going to let it happen. For behold, I will wave my hand over them. It's amazing. God does lots of dramatic things in the Bible but I, 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 I dare you to find me one passage where God works up a sweat. <laughs> Everything he does, he does so easily. Right. He just waves his hand over them and they become plunder for their slaves. They were plundering you, now they're the plunder. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, for I'm coming, I'll dwell in your midst. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and become my people. Then I'll dwell in your midst and you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Think about Many many nations coming and joining. Remember the promise to Abraham, and you, all this, and your descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How the, the mountain of the Lord's house would be raised up, and all the nations will be flowing up to it. Micah chapter four and Isaiah chapter two, and and so and, and the idea of God dwelling in our midst. What's he talking about? Well, clearly he's talking about the coming of Christ. That's when God dwelled in our midst. That's when the many nations joined themselves to the Lord and became His people. But I want you to notice something. This becomes really complicated when you try to figure out who's who in this. So I'm going to start reading in verse 8. I want you to try to keep track of who's who, okay? For thus says the Lord of hosts, so pay attention to who's talking, the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so they will become plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Does that make any sense? It's like, wait a minute, we meet ourselves coming back all that time. What do you learn from that? What do you learn? There's
1: another character that he sent
0: me. And what is that character? The Lord of hosts? Yeah. You've got more than one that are the Lord of hosts. You can't explain that passage any other way. There are clearly more than one that are Lord of hosts. I think he's talking about God and Jesus, the Father and Jesus. I don't know how else you're going to explain that, because clearly it's not Zechariah in some of these passages. The Lord of hosts is sending the Lord of hosts. So you've got to have more than one that are that. That's not totally unheard of in the Old Testament. Remember when God said, let us make man, let us make man in our image? Who is he talking to? Are we made in the image of angels? No indication of that. I mean, I think he was talking to the Father, and the, the Son, and the Spirit. And, uh, you know, let us go down and check out that tower they were building up to heaven. You know, it's the us again. Who, who, uh, he tells Isaiah, who will go for us? You know, there's a, several passages that indicate a plurality in the Godhead in the Old Testament. It becomes clearer in the New Testament, more, more spe- specific but it's but it's there in the old testament. So I think that's a factor here. So I really think that this whole passage is looking primarily at the coming of Jesus, at Jesus being sent to dwell with them as the lord of hosts in their midst and many nations joining and becoming God's people in that day. Comments and questions on chapter 2. Roger. So this
5: is to encourage the people to build to build the temple
0: yes and to trust in the lord
5: but yet some of these imageries would discourage you to build a temple in my in my way i'm thinking okay if god's gonna be a wall around me then why should i build the wall if god is gonna dwell you know dwell within our midst then why do i need to build the temple if God's going to do it now i understand a little bit but it's almost like he's saying continue to work be obedient and i'm going to fulfill some great
2: promises is that the idea
0: Yes, and the temple does represent the house of God. And so for the time being, that's going to be their way of connecting with the Lord. But you're right. He is telling them that by their doing this, there will be uh, set in motion a chain of events that will cause God to dwell with them in a greater and more blessed and more direct way than he ever has before. Yeah. Right. Anybody else? Okay. I'm not necessarily trying to exhaust these passages. I'm trying to give you what I know, <laughs> some of the things I can't answer, and trying to streamline it a little bit so that we can try to get through more of this. But you're welcome to ask questions, and I'll tell you I don't know when I need to. So chapter 3, the fourth vision, this one is really cool too, really amazing vision. So let's start with uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5.
5: Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel
0: of the Lord was standing nearby. So here's Joshua. Who's Joshua? The high priest priest at that time. Sometimes he's called Jeshua. It depends on your translation. depends on the passage. Joshua, the high priest, is standing, and who's there with him? Two other figures. Yeah, angel of the Lord and Satan. And what's Satan there to do? to accuse him. Yeah, to accuse him, to, to, to claim that he wasn't, uh, he had no standing there. And the Lord says to Satan in verse 2, the Lord rebukes Satan. There's another, the Lord says the Lord, you know, more than one Lord, uh, the Lord rebukes Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And so Satan is rebuked, Because God's chosen his people and he's plucked them out of the fire. He's rescued them from captivity. He's shown his favor upon them. And he's rebuking Satan for standing there to accuse them. But in verse 3, you find out why Satan feels like he's got some standing to accuse his people. What in the world is Joshua wearing? Filthy garments. And what I've read about that term, it could include filth from human waste. You know, filth from being dragged through the sewer or whatever. Just gross, horrible, filthy garments. Can you imagine standing before God in soiled garments? How would that make you feel?
2: Unwanted.
0: Yeah, unwanted. It'd make you feel gross. You know, every once in a while you have a dream of being inappropriately dressed or undressed or whatever in an important occasion and it's just overwhelming and you feel like, oh no, what's, what's going on? Can you imagine being in clothes like this before the Lord, no wonder Satan was there, thinking he could accuse Joshua. Now, why in the world was Joshua wearing such filthy clothes? The filthy clothes represent his sin. Yeah, yes, but more than that.
2: Israel, like, Israel.
0: Who is Joshua? The high, the high priest. So I think this represents not just his personal sins, but the sins of the nation. Yeah. 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 And they're filthy. I mean, we don't understand how horrible our sins are, you know, because this may be a bad illustration, but I spent a lot of time in prison as a visitor, not as a resident, but, uh, <laughs> but I spent a lot of time there. And, and I was in mostly a sex crime facility where I spent about 25 hours a week for, several years, for two or three years. And uh, it was really interesting, their view of things, because the people who had committed forced rape and murder really look down on the child abusers. Well, I thought that was kind of funny. Now, child abuse is horrible. But murder and forced rape is not exactly a picnic. What you think of sin depends on what you've done. If it's a sin you've committed, doesn't sound that bad. If it's a sin somebody else has committed, that one's bad. Right? In that kind of we're not very good judges of how bad sin is, since we're sinners ourselves. And so we sometimes have a hard time being as disgusted with our sins as what we really ought to be. I want to show you a couple of verses in Ezekiel. You can jot them down or look if you want. In Ezekiel 20, verse 43, this might almost seem wrong at first. But this is a a good part of Ezekiel where they're repenting. He says in 2043, there there you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you've done. You will loathe yourselves for all the evil that you've done. That's the proper perspective on the sinfulness of sin. Now, I know we need to receive God's forgiveness and grace and be comforted by that, but it comes after loathing ourselves for our sins. Ezekiel 36, 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. That's Ezekiel 36, 31. We need to see how filthy, repulsive, stinking, awful our sins are. You know, we were morally in the gutter no, I wasn't. I haven't done what those guys have done. What if you were God? You never, ever committed any, any single, any, a, a single sin. Never. You've never been impure in any way. And he looked at you. How would he feel about that? We need to see how bad our sins are. And that's, a, that's an important step to coming to the Lord. You know, until that prodigal son realized he was down and out and in the gutter, he didn't go back home. And until we see how bad we need God's forgiveness, we're probably not going to seek it. So if sin isn't so bad, grace isn't so great. So, poor Joshua. Filthy garments and all. And standing there in the presence of the Lord and Satan, what would you do? What can you say? I mean, what, what would you think if you were up here today wearing clothes that had been soiled in the most extreme way possible? You smell bad. Everybody in the room could smell you. I and mean, that would be horrifying. You'd be so embarrassed, so ashamed. But this is worse. This is just a physical depiction of this, uh, how bad sin stinks. But what happens? He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. They take off those filthy garments. It says, I've taken your nakedness away from you and will clothe you with clean clothes. Is that what it says? What does he say he'll clothe him with? robes, Party clothes! Not just clean ones. Boy, clean ones would be nice. Right. But better than clean ones. With, 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 with the highest of celebratory clothes. And, and a new turban, new clean turban to boot. That is amazing. God does something that man could not do. He takes away the filthy clothes and puts on celebration clothes. Amen. Jesus died not just to forgive us, but to transform us. Not just to Absolve us of the guilt of our sin, but to cleanse us. What a blessing that is, we need it. And and, and, and until we see God's willingness to cleanse us, we'll never come to him. Who'd come to God wearing clothes like that? Who'd come anywhere wearing clothes like that? You know, we've got to see God wants to take all of those off and give us clean, wonderful top-of-the-line clothes and he's willing to he's eager to that's an amazing blessing that's what he's telling him now you can see this certainly transcends something that happened in Zechariah's day this is talking very much about Jesus and the cleansing that he gives and that's just such a powerful passage so encouraging and and really we need both pictures We need to see how bad sin stinks, and how guilty and awful and wretched we are. And then we need to see the amazing love and grace of God, eager to cleanse people like us. That's remarkable. Thoughts and comments on all that? Justin.
3: The the characters that are present here, you've got Joshua, um, Satan. God and his angel, and I'm thinking, you know, which one is me? And certainly you're saying with with the sinner need forgiveness, but sometimes I'm not I'm not offering forgiveness. I'm not looking at others saying, Let's show them mercy. I'm more like Satan, I'm accusing others and saying, certainly they deserve judgment. I think you mentioned Luke fifteen and the older brother. Uh, rather than being like the father, sometimes we're like the older brother saying, how could God ever show them mercy? And we need to be more like the angels rejoicing that someone
0: has repented. Yeah, it's really inappropriate for people who have needed and received such great forgiveness to be unwilling to forgive. That's just, that's outrageous. And, and we need to teach and preach the message of grace and forgiveness. Not Obviously, encouraging us to continue in our sin by no means, but giving us hope of the possibility of overcoming those sins and being cleansed from them. Because a a lot of times people don't come to the Lord because they know they're they're not worthy of it. They they feel like they're they're so worthless themselves. How could God ever receive them? Well, this passage shows us. Other thoughts? Yes, Brian
1: funny that he said that because I was going to say that just, just the language of it in verse 5. You know, he said you're going to put on pure vestments, and I said let them put a clean turban on his head. It reminds me of the prodigal son when he comes back. They say give him a robe and put a uh, put, the, put a choice ring on his finger. You know, it's like they're adding on to the don't just give him clothes. give you know, Put the best ring on, on his finger. So, similar. Just the way they say it.
0: It's a remarkable thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That God would want to not just receive him back at arm's length, We ran and hugged and kissed him, and, and clothed him with the best clothes. Yes, good point. Other comments, questions?
5: Yeah, I like what you yes. said about the party clothes, and that is, we have to see our sins for what it is, but after we've seen it and acknowledge it and come to God for forgiveness, there's a lot of reasons to celebrate and to rejoice and not to continue to look back at our sins in a discouraging way, in a, you know, putting me down kind of way. So let's celebrate. We have new clothing, we have put on Christ, and that there's plenty of reasons to rejoice.
0: Good point. Yes, amen. Yes, Michael.
4: See, I see in Isaiah the idea of keeping our sin in the proper perspective reinforced. We were talking about the filthy garments earlier. So Isaiah 64, 6 says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So we might think we're doing well, we might think we're doing the right thing, but in the sight of God, it, it doesn't measure
0: up. Right. Yes. Yeah. Until we see our stinking sinfulness, then we'll not come to the Lord because we don't think we need Him. We won't recognize how, how bad off we are. Sometimes we get to being accustomed to the smell. All right, how about six to ten?
5: Then the angel of the
3: Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts: if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also guide my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest. You and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. Behold, I I am bringing forth my servant the branch. To behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription. Says the Lord of hosts, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor.
0: Under his mind and under his feet. All right, so if you will walk in my ways, verse 7, if you will perform my service, then you'll govern my house, have charge of my courts, and have free access among those who are standing there. God provides access to his throne to those who are walking in his ways. You know, it's hard sometimes to take advantage of our blessings in Christ because we feel so paralyzed by our guilt. But he's saying that if we'll walk with him, we can have access to him. Sinners, horrible sinners like us, can have access to the throne of God, can, can walk in his, in his uh, courts by the blood of Jesus. That's what they ultimately he's saying, by the forgiveness that we've received. And he says in verse 8, this is significant, Joshua, you and your friends, are men who are a symbol. Joshua is a symbol. Now, do you know How you translate the Hebrew word Joshua into Greek? Jesus. So Joshua symbolizes Jesus. Behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. I think the idea is God cut down the tree of Judaism, and Jesus is the branch, the shoot that springs forth to give new life to that tree. And that branch is used several times in the prophets as a a, a way of describing Jesus. So I think he's already saying, Joshua, you symbolize you know, these spiritual realities. And ultimately, Jesus becomes the one who, who bore our sins on the cross and who carried those away from us. He says, behold, the stone that I set before Joshua on one stone or seven eyes. It's really hard to know what the stone represents. I take it as referring to God's people and God's watching over his people. He's engraved an inscription that he removed the iniquity of the land in one day. Remember how Jesus overcame sin? He, he gave the atonement for sin, and he went back up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. All the priests in the temple and tabernacle stood while they were in there because they had work to do. Jesus offered his sacrifice for sin and sat down. He did the work already. The sins have been removed in one day. And that day, the Lord says, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. You know, a a picture of prosperity and contentment, like in Solomon's day. So the blessings for God's people are going to be access to God, are going to be God watching over us, God removing our iniquity in one day, and being able to sit under our vine and under a fig tree with prosperity, contentment, and hope in Christ. These are clearly quite symbolic But i think the farther we get into this the more it's obvious this is primarily messianic i think it has some application in some points to things that were happening in the foreground but i think the greater vision is the vision we have of what happens in jesus and remarkable stuff in zechariah for that thoughts and comments on chapter three
5: is it also fair to see in verse nine so we have a stone the stone has eyes And in this stone, God has engraved this idea that I'm going to remove the iniquity. So (laughs) the stone engraved is going to be short. I put it down on writing. The eyes is, I'm going to see to it that this promise is going to be fulfilled. So it's almost like God trying to reassure his people, I am going to remove the sin. I've written it down. I've engraved it in. There's eyes on that stone. Because I'm going to see to it that it's going to take place. That's reasonable.
0: That's a reasonable explanation, I think. Other comments or questions? All right, that feels like a lot of things to think about for a moment. So I think it'd be good to take a break here.